Well, good morning, church family. And uh, if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, it's just a delight to get the privilege of worshiping with you. Uh, my name is Randy, and I'm uh, the lead minister here at the church. Today we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 19. Acts 19, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn there. You'll find that on page 928. Uh, and send your church Bibles. It's in the pouch in front of you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own and you'd like a copy, please avail yourself to that. Put your name in it and receive it as a gift from our church family. And um, the Apostle Paul is in the great city of Ephesus this week in Acts chapter 19. And it's an incredible passage of Scripture. Uh, let's, I'm gonna, we're going to look at the entire chapter but I want to read verses 11 through 20. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is God's word. Jesus once told a parable that interprets this passage of Scripture that we just read. It's a one-verse parable. It's in Mark chapter 3, verse 27. It's up on the screen. I call it the parable of breaking and entering 101. My apologies to law enforcement officers. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Breaking and entering 101. <laughs> Let's make sure we understand what this says. Objective. Take the goods from the strong man's house. Strategy. Number one. Find the strong man. Number two, take the goods from the house. End of parable. But you've got to go in that order. 
You see, that's the deal. Now, why would Jesus tell this story? Because he's not talking about breaking and entering. He's talking about, well, who's the strong man? Who are the goods? Ah, that's what makes the parable make sense, which then interprets Acts chapter 19. Who's the strong man? The strong man, according to Jesus' parable, is the evil one, is Satan. He's the strong man. And only Jesus can bind the strong man. Well, who are the goods? That's you and me. We've been captured. We've, we've been plundered. We've been taken from God's kingdom through our sin and disobedience and following the prince of the power of the air. And now we belong to him. And we can't get out on our own. Jesus, though, is the only one who can come in, bind the strong man. He is the stronger strong man over the strong man who binds the strong man and then takes us back. That's why Paul would say in Colossians, uh, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and planted us into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves. Jesus has taken us. We're, we're the plunder, and we belong to God in the first place, and now Jesus has come to reclaim us. That's what makes this such an important parable. And one which interprets what we see in Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, we see Jesus' stronger word penetrating a culture, bringing that culture from darkness to light in Christ. And if you've ever wondered, is it really possible for the gospel to so penetrate a culture that that culture would be changed in the name of Jesus. Acts chapter 9 is, is the example, is a historical example of how the gospel literally changed the culture, literally changed an economy. Think about, think about, use your imagination. What would our community look like were the gospel to penetrate, the stronger man of the gospel were to penetrate our culture. What would happen? People say, oh, they'd shut down the movie houses. No, that's not true. There would just be better movies. See? There, there, would, there would be better restaurants. There would be better beverages. There would be better businesses. There would be better schools. There would be better neighborhoods. There would be better families. There would be better marriages. There would be better parenting. Better, everything would be better. When the gospel shows up, everything gets better. And, and only Jesus can make this happen. He's the stronger man, binding the strong man, taking what originally belongs to him and taking it into his kingdom. That's what's going on in Ephesians chapter 19. So our big idea, the main truth in this chapter is, is simply this. The gospel word shared, lived, and spoken is, is God's stronger power for life change in Christ. The gospel word, when that gospel word is spoken, lived, and shared, it's the 
It's the stronger power for life change in Christ. And I just want to walk us through the story of what this looked like in the ancient city of, of Ephesus. Now, let me tell you really why this matters so much before I get into the text. And it has to do with the word idolatry, idols. We're going to see idols in uh, these verses. And, you know, you might be hearing me saying, Pastor, come on, get contemporary, would you? I'm not like those ancient, ignorant people who worship little statues that you call idols. Not so fast, friend. Let me define idol. An idol is anything that we commit our ultimate allegiance to other than God. Anything. And, I, and that could be, that can be a good thing. In fact, someone once put it this way. An idol is, is a good thing that becomes a bad thing when it's turned into a God thing. See? And anything can be an idol. Why do you think Paul saw so many idols in Athens? Because you can turn an idol out of, you can turn an idol out of ministry activity. You can turn an idol out of parenting. You can turn an idol out of possessions, out of education, out of your career, anything. You can turn an idol out of car stereos. Yeah. Have you heard of, have you heard of uh, decibel drag racers? Nobody? Oh, my goodness. Well, so National Public Radio uh, has this program called This American Life. And This American Life does stories on the uniqueness of American culture. And so on a recent program, uh, it was titled Decibel Drag Racing. And what they do is they, they trick these vehicles up with these phenomenal car stereos. Take a look at this. I mean, yeah, wow. I'm at one van, they poured 900 pounds of concrete in. You know, uh, windshields last about three seconds as they have these contests. See, ironically, the cars really can't go anywhere. <laughs> okay? So it's, they're not racing in the drag racing sense of the term. They're lining these cars up and turning the stereos on. And I mean, they give out prizes and trophies. And I mean, it's just... And so... The article, and if you're a decibel drag racer, I'm not judging you. I'm not. I'm really not. I'm I just reporting the news here. So, <laughs> so, so the journalist, remember, this is not coming from a judgmental preacher. This is coming from a curious journalist. So the journalist is listening to the story and watching all of this and just being amazed by it all. And then the journalist asks the question. It's a brilliant question. Why would someone want to be first in something like that? Why would someone want to be first in something like that? And here's the answer. Oh, my goodness. Look at this. Here's the response. Because everybody wants to be the king of a hill. But the number of aspiring kings always dwarfs the number of available hills. So in this country, we build more hills. <laughs> That's idolatry. 
We just want to, we just want to, oh, we just want to build an anthill. So we got 350 million anthills in our country. I'm king of the hill. God says, I've not made you to be king of a puny little kingdom of one. I've not made you to rule an anthill. Let me show you Everest. And let me show you the true king. You've been made for that king. You've been made for this mountain. I've made you for this. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, Psalm 121. That's what we see in this passage of Scripture. The, the, the truth of the gospel word, the stronger power over those puny little anthills. Well, let's just see this in motion through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul has been on his missionary journeys. In Acts 13.3, he started his first missionary journey uh, over the Roman Empire, establishing churches. And then in Acts 15. 36, he began his second missionary journey. Let's take a look at the map of Paul's second journey. On the right side of the screen, there's Antioch, which is where he began the journey. And you follow the trail. And he goes through what is now modern-day Turkey to Troas. He's establishing churches along the way. He goes to Philippi and is persecuted heavily. Then Thessalonica and Berea, where he also faces resistance to the gospel. But people are receiving the gospel. People are resisting the gospel. And Paul uh, is actually escorted out of Thessalonica and Berea by his team for fear of his life. And he goes to Athens by himself. And he preaches to the Areopagus, the leading um, governors of that city. And there are some converts, uh, but he's also scoffed and mocked at. And then he goes to Corinth, a very, very difficult city. But he was there 18 months, and a church was established, and his team uh, rejoins him. He meets Priscilla and Aquila, a wonderful, wonderful married couple, and, and uh, Timothy's with him. Luke, who gives us Acts, is there. And there's a ministry that's happening for 18 months, after which Paul then travels from Corinth to Ephesus, which is where that starburst is in the middle of your screen. And uh, it says that after he had gone to Ephesus, Acts 18, 19, they came to Ephesus. He left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. But he didn't stay in Ephesus very long. After he was in Ephesus, just a very short time, he gets back on a boat and look at verse 22. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then, when, then went down to Antioch. So he goes to Caesarea, and then it says he went up and greeted the church. What does that mean, he went up and greeted the church? It means he went to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is a city set on a hill. And from any direction, you've got to go up to get to Jerusalem. So he goes to Jerusalem and checks in with the, the church of predominantly Hebrew believers there, and then he goes down to Antioch, because when you leave Jerusalem, you're going downhill. And then you, he goes to Antioch, which is where a, predominantly a Gentile or a non-Hebrew church is. What's Paul doing? Paul is taking the stronger word of the gospel, living it out, 
practicing it, sharing it, to show that the gospel transcends. The gospel includes all ethnicities from all tribes and all nations and all languages. There's one gospel. And Paul is saying to his brothers and sisters in Christ in Jerusalem, the kingdom of God is expanding. And God is at work fulfilling the promises of Abraham. God had said to Abraham, through you, all nations will be blessed. And the nations are gathering in worship for no other reason than Jesus is king. And then Paul goes to Antioch and says, oh, brothers and sisters in, uh, of Antioch, uh, believers in Antioch, your brothers and sisters in Christ in Jerusalem affirm the gospel that we've been teaching and preaching. And, and he reports on all of that the Lord has been doing in his missionary travels. And it says that uh, he went to Antioch in verse 23 in Acts 18. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next to the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Acts 18.23 begins Paul's third missionary journey. And that's what I want you to see in this particular map here. So after Paul had been in Antioch for a while, he leaves again to strengthen the churches that he had started. And so he goes back to, to uh, Derby and Lystra and Iconium. And then notice, look, that he went straight from Iconium to Ephesus. He tried to do that on the second missionary journey, remember? But the Spirit of Jesus would not let him. Why? Be because, you see, in the second missionary journey, look at where these churches were planted by the Aegean Sea. Why there? Because that was the intersection of the Roman Empire. East and west, north and south. That's where the people are. And so that's where the, it's going to be like a, a ripple effect that takes place. And so, um, and that's why you see Colossae, that church was started. Paul didn't start that church. Somebody else started that church because Paul influenced them for Christ and so on and so forth. So, but Paul lands in Ephesus now. Now let's just take a look at the modern, uh, the ancient city of Ephesus. I've got some pictures here that I want you to see. When you go into ancient Ephesus, uh, the first thing you see in the city is an amphitheater, but that's a small amphitheater. That's called a political amphitheater. That's the version of city hall. And then as you keep walking, uh, Sarah and I, by the way, got to go to Turkey several years ago. And so, I mean, that's the street that the apostle Paul walked on church. It's absolutely phenomenal. Um, and then at the end uh, of that uh, long road that I showed you was uh, the library. And then if you turn right at the library, you get to that huge amphitheater. 25,000 people. That's first century. Uh, so the ocean is to the speaker's back. And the wind comes off the ocean and acts as the microphone to amplify the speaker's day. And I can, I can stand in the center of that amphitheater and look at this that seats 25,000 and I can speak and I don't need a microphone. The acoustics are that effective. But this is, and, and the, but the jewel of Ephesus was this temple here called the Temple of Artemis. There it is. Um, that temple was the size of a football field. And uh, uh, it was where the worship of Artemis, let's go back to that statue. That's Artemis. 
It's kind of gross, isn't it? This kind of a, a, god, a fertility goddess. She's a multi-breasted, and, and there's uh, different uh, animals and idol, idol-like figures there. That's, that figure was housed uh, on a large scale in this massive temple, one of the wonders of the world. And what you need to understand is that the temple system back then also functioned as a banking system. It also functioned as kind of a marketplace, a restaurant. I mean, it was the hub of economic activity in Ephesus, this magnificent city of 250,000. That's where Paul goes. So Paul returns after he'd been to Jerusalem and Caesarea. And in Acts chapter 19, verse 8, he does what he's always done. He goes into a synagogue and he, he shows uh, his Hebrew brothers and sisters from the Hebrew scriptures that Jesus of Nazareth is Israel's long-awaited Messiah, speaking boldly, reasoning, and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And many received the message, and many did not. Look at verse 9. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, they spoke evil of the way. You get, the, you get the digression there? They're stubborn. They continue in unbelief. And then they speak evil. Anybody here on that path? Hmm. Well, finally, after three months, Paul withdrew. He took the disciples with him, and he went to a place in verse 9 called the Hall of Tyrannus. The Hall of Tyrannus. Now, uh, sometimes these, it's just like a lecture hall. I don't know that it was a separate building or maybe it was a room in a larger building. Uh, but it was, it was, usually these halls were named after teachers. Tyrannus actually means tyrant. I don't think I would have wanted that person as my teacher, huh? But that's what it means. The Hall of Tyrannus. And notice in your footnote, it says that Paul lectured there reasoning Every day, you see the footnote? From 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. From the 5th hour to the 10th hour. All right? And someone's thinking, well, I'd like that job. Go to work from 11 to 4? Not bad, pastor. Not so fast. Not so fast. Let's get the whole picture here. What's going on? Remember, Paul is a tent maker meaning he works with leather and he cuts and shapes and then he stitches and makes it waterproof. So Paul is up at the crack of dawn. He's at his workstation because he's providing for himself. And then right around 1045, 1050, he goes to the lecture hall of Tyrannus at 11 a. Now, but why 11 to 4? Why 11 to 4? Because that's when the city shut down. Because it got so hot during the, uh, during the summertime. And, and uh, they didn't have air conditioning. So, in fact, one scholar says that you would find more residents from Ephesus at 1 a.m. than you would 1 p.m. Because the city's kind of closing down, slowing down uh, during the heat of the day. And then right around 4 o'clock, businesses reopen, see, and stay open into the night. That's, that's how, that was their cycle there. And so Paul uses that time 
to rent this hall so that he could lecture. And you may be saying, yeah, but if everybody's, well, not everybody is taking a nap from 11 to 4 because it's a city of 250,000. So Paul is in this lecture and he's reasoning with folks and, and he's speaking, verse 8, about the kingdom of God. What is that? Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's what it is. Paul's preaching a worldview. The Bible is not just 66 separate books. The Bible is a story of reality. A story of God's dealings with his people. Because people want to know the answer to life's big questions. How did all this come into being? What's wrong with this world? What's the solution? How's it going to end? Those are the big questions of life. And Paul preaches the kingdom of God. Creation. God created all that we see. In the beginning, God created. And so creation, he said creation's good. And the pinnacle of creation is human life. We are called to be representatives of God. We are called to rule creation. We're called to be his ambassadors. Creation. And, and oh, creation is, creation is beautiful. It is beautiful. The other night, near sunset, after the thunderstorm had passed, the sun is between the, 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 the squall line of the clouds and the horizon. And the light beamed over the grass. And others were with me and witnessed this. And those grass blades looked like gold. I'm telling you. You tell me there's no God? Oh, my. And here's the glory of it all, church. Huh. In the new heavens and the new earth. I mean, we just got a taste of what that is. We get a taste of the new heavens and the new earth as we worship here. It's just glorious. And listen, one blade of grass in the new heavens and the new earth is more glorious than anything we've ever seen here. Oh, the best is yet to come. And so you see, all this is good. Creation, fall. The fall occurred because, because our spiritual ancestors, they didn't want to represent God. They wanted to be God. You will be like God. And our world's been broken ever since. And that word total depravity doesn't mean that you're as bad as you can be. It means that there is nothing on this earth that remains untouched by sin. I mean, everything is broken. Everything, our relationships, uh, climate, government's broken, the environment's broken. It's just broken. And we can't fix it ourselves. We can't. But God, in his mercy, sent his son. Creation, fall, redemption. Jesus, the stronger man, came on a search and rescue mission. And by his life, death, crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, and the sending of his spirit upon his people. He calls us to live the life of the new heavens and the new earth now. Listen, the point of Christianity is not to get into heaven after you die. It's to get into heaven before you die. 
is to bring the life of heaven here and now. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. When one day our great king will appear like the emperor would appear before one of these imperial cities and the people would come out to welcome him and they would all come back into the city and everything is different when the emperor's in town. That is our, that is our restoration hope. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. For two whole years, Paul preached that. And lives were changed, verse 10. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And I, I can't describe it in any other way than just using the word awakening. There was an awakening that occurred in the city of Ephesus. Verse 11 says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. I, in extraordinary ways. Look at verse 12. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Now let's not misread that. Because Luke is not telling us that Paul went into the televangelist business or that he had handkerchiefs manufactured with his handprint on them that he sold for $19.99. That's not what he's saying there. No, no, no. What he's saying, and this is a sweat rag. And Paul is in his shop and he's wiping his brow because it's getting hot. No, it's almost 11 o'clock, okay? He puts his handkerchief down. He's taking off his apron. He goes, and he goes to the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and he comes back, and he can't find his handkerchief. Where is that? What did I do with my apron? They just keep walking off. Luke tells us what happened. They were carried off. People thought, is Paul here? No, good. Take this. Go. Let's go. And, and people were, I mean, that tells you how desperate they were for life change. Paul was no schmarmy televangelist. But there were some schmarmy televangelists there. Look at verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, that's a clue. That's first century talk for schmarmy televangelists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil. So they weren't believers, but they were going to use the name of Jesus kind of like a, 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 a charm or something like that. I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. See? Now here's the deal, though. Satan can tell a true believer from a false believer. <laughs> okay? <laughs> the seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. And so they tried this on some dude that was possessed by an evil spirit. The evil spirit answered him back. Well, I know Jesus and I know Paul. Who are you? And I mean the dude with the evil spirit lipped on all seven of those boys. Mastered all of them. Overpowered them. Look at verse 16. It's hilarious. They fled out of that house naked and wounded. Now what does that mean? Well, here's what it means. If you are in a fight with a demon-possessed person and you are wearing pants before the fight, but then after the fight you're not wearing pants, you lost. Okay? I read that in the commentary. True. True story. 
That's deep. That's really deep, isn't it? What did you learn in church today? Don't tell them that. Please. Or tell them that. But tell them everything. If you're going to tell them that, tell them everything. Okay. Oh, my goodness. i got to check this guy out. They're saying whatever it takes. So... But look what happened. <laughs> we laugh, but, but in this, when, when this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, a holy fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And life change is happening. Look, a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. Verse 19. 50, 000, worth 50,000 pieces of silver. That's 137 years worth of wages. Hmm. And I want you to pay attention to these verses because it does not say that the Apostle Paul told them to burn those books. They just realized, well, I, don't need, I don't need this anthill when I've been offered Everest. And, and, and they're not going to sell the books and give the proceeds to the church. See, no. Get rid, that's garbage. Burn them. Nobody. Nobody should. What, what needs to be burned in your life? And that's a question between you and the Lord. Oh, that will, that will take you to your next level on your journey with Christ. That is a good question to ponder, right? Amen. Amen. Well, that's why verse 20 says, the word of the Lord continued to increase because the gospel word is God's stronger power for life change in Christ. It unifies from all ethnicities and tribes and languages. It, it calls people to life. Randall, come forth. And then it, it brings light into a dark community. And that leads to this amphitheater in verses 21 to 41. This you must understand. When the evil one is attacked, he pushes back and he does not fight fair. So as Christianity was increasing, idolatry was decreasing, which meant idols were decreasing and the sale of idols and this hurt wages and Demetrius, verse 24, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis. I showed you a picture of what that little idol looked like. Brought no little business to the craftsman, verse 24. He'd had enough. He says in verse 25, you know, men, that from this business we have our wealth. So that's the issue, isn't it? And this Paul's persuading people to turn away, saying that the gods are not real gods at all. Well, he's heard it correctly. But there's a danger of him. No idols and no, no Artemis and now no, no temple and now no, now no great Ephesus. And the sky is falling. And people are getting, I mean, stirred up. And all of a sudden, they, they, they start chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Say that. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Say that again. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Louder. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Again, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they pour into that 25,000 seat amphitheater, chanting, yelling, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. 
Ephesians. I mean, it's just pandemonium. Verse 29 says the city was filled with confusion. They rushed toward the theater. They grabbed two of the Christians, Gaius and Aristarchus. Verse 29, Paul finds out about it, and he wants to go in and try to reason with the crowd. They're saying, stay back, Paul. In fact, uh, some Asiarchs prevented Paul. Who are those? Those are, the, those are the city's elite. So the gospel has penetrated every level of society. And they said, you are not going in, buddy. Just stay right where you are. And, and people kept crying out and pandemonium and chaos. And some of them didn't even know why they were there. Verse 32. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them didn't know why they'd come. Well, you know, they're mad about something. What are we mad about anyway? And finally, someone named Alexander got up to try to speak. But when they found out that he was Hebrew, they gave a racial slur and then said, sit down. And for two hours, great is Artemis of Ephesians. I mean, we can, we can hear the chanting from Memorial Stadium when it happens. I mean, I can hear the, I can hear the, the, the sounds from downtown from where we live. The acoustics are that way. Finally, two hours, the town clerk, the city manager gets up, quieting the crowd. He says, look, don't listen to this, Paul. We We have our system. He's not broken any laws. But I'll tell you who's about to break some laws. It's everybody here. We are a free city. Ephesus is a free city. But if we are accused of rioting, you know Caesar will send in the legions. Now, Demetrius, if you've got a problem, take it to the courts. Take it to the courts. But we're about to be accused of rioting. Now, you all go home. And the chapter ends. (laughs) That's it. Verse 41. When he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. And here is another example, church family, of Jesus being true to his word. Because did he not tell Paul in Acts 18, 9, do not be afraid, go on speaking, do not be silent, I am with you, no one will attack you to harm you. I didn't say no one wouldn't attack you, I said no one would attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. That was true in Corinth, is true in Ephesus, is true today. The gospel word going out. And that's why, church family, later on when Paul would write the letter to the Ephesians, he would say in Ephesians chapter 6, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the darkness in, uh, of this present darkness. And then he goes on to talk about the importance of wearing the armor of God, the very armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel. And what's the only offensive weapon in the armor of God? The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Only offensive weapons, the word of and note this there is no armor for the backside. And why? Because cowards who turn and run are not protected. We move forward 
That's why, that's why Jesus said, on this rock, and the rock is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, I will build my church, and the gates of hell, the fortress of hell, will not prevail against it. We're advancing together with the armor of God. And that's why the Apostle Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are God's workmanship. You don't create a God. How can you respect a God that you create from your hands? How can you do that? That God won't push back at you. That God won't argue with you. That God won't dispute you. That, why, try, creating a God out of your own hand is like paying for someone to be your friend. And if you got to pay someone to be your friend, that's poor medicine for loneliness. You need a friend who stands independent of you, who is not tame. And my friend Jesus is not tame. We don't create him. He recreates us. And it's no secret then that the Apostle Paul would say to the believers in the church in Ephesus, in Ephesus chapter 2, he would liken the church to a holy temple in the Lord. Uh, the, 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 the wonder of the ancient world is an anthill compared to the Everest of the holy temple of the Lord. But you've got to choose which temple you're going to belong to because it's either Jesus or Artemis. Both can't be right. You must choose. Let me help you choose. Now that picture that I showed you of the temple of Artemis, that's what it was in its prime 2,000 years ago. Magnificent, one of the wonders of the ancient world, temple of Artemis. That's what's left today. Any questions? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the mighty word of your gospel. A word that brings people to life. A word that defines reality. A word that gives us a vision of Everest in a world of anthills. A word is about the, uh, concerning the word made flesh who dwelt among us and gave himself for us. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. And the church said, amen.